Welcome to Truly Fit, the online fitness marketplace connecting pros and clients through unique fitness business software. Welcome to the Truly Fit Podcast, where we interview experts in fitness and health to expand our wisdom and wealth. I am your host, Steve Washuda, co-founder of Truly Fit and author of Fitness Business 101. On today's podcast, I speak with Dr. Vimal Thomas-George. Dr. George is an MD who practices medicine at a multi-specialty clinic in Austin, Texas, where he lives. He also has a master's degree in healthcare quality and safety management. We are going to be discussing his book, Health in Flames, which you can find at healthinflames.com. I thoroughly enjoyed reading Dr. George's book, and because of that, I thought it would be fun to take a different perspective and try to push back as a devil's advocate in this conversation rather than just pat Dr. George on the back and tell him how great his book is. And I believe it worked. It really made the conversation more fruitful and expansive and allowed him to unpack his thoughts and his sort of thesis of the book. We go over his macro thoughts on why consumerism and corporatism lead to bad lifestyle choices from the general population, which in turn lead to bad health choices. And it is a great conversation. We don't go over everything in the book, especially sort of the nuances of of his beliefs. So it's still worth getting the book again at healthandflames.com. And with no further ado, here's Dr. George and I. Dr. George, thank you so much for joining the Truly Fit podcast we're here to discuss your book, uh, Health and Flames, which I thought was an amazing book. And because I probably agree with 90% uh, of the book, maybe there's a little bit of pushback from the, some of the things we can change in the medical industry. Uh, I thought it would be more fruitful of a conversation for me to play a bit of an antagonist here, a devil's advocate. So the format's going to be a little bit different. Uh, audience, don't feel bad for him. He is certainly uh, up for this intellectual sparring as, <laughs> as my interlocutor. Yeah, uh, but but I will be asking some questions that maybe push against some of the things you say in your book so that you can, you know, further unpack that and, and prove your points. But why don't you give the audience a summary of your credentials and your sort of intellectual pursuits and then also of, of your book? Sure. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, uh, Steve, I really appreciate the, the chance to come on your show and talk to your listeners. Um, so a little bit about me. I'm a family physician. Uh, I work in Austin, Texas. Uh, I've been here for between 15 to 20 years doing uh, a medical practice here in a uh, fairly good sized multi-specialty group. Um, so in that 15 years over time, I've, you know, kind of taken on positions from uh, chief of family medicine to eventually uh, chief of population health for our patients in the central Texas area. And what I learned is that from that vantage point, I kind of saw what uh, a lot of my physician colleagues I'm sure are familiar with, a lot of healthcare providers are familiar with, and really a lot of uh, people in the, in the audience are probably aware of, which is that, you know, re, re, you know rates of chronic disease are increasing year over year. Uh, whether you're looking at rates of diabetes, hypertension, colon cancer, Alzheimer's, um, major depressive disorders, anxiety disorders, a lot of these various diseases are actually increasing year over year and moreover, you know, obesity rates are increasing as well, right? And, and so, uh, you know, it's shocking, uh, you know, to a lot of folks listening out there, but 73% of, of our adult population in the U.S. is either overweight or obese at this point. And that is actually increasing year over year. And so, you know, basically um, what that points to is that the traditional advice that we've been giving folks, uh, follow healthy diet and exercise, 
uh, it's just not working. <laughs> it's just, um, there's nothing wrong with the advice. Uh, it is something that is still foundational and good health, uh, but for whatever reason, uh, we're not able to implement that in our, in our lifestyle. And so uh, I kind of take a step back, take a look at the reasons for why we're not successful in implementing that and propose a solution for doing so. And you believe that consumerism plays a role in that, if, if not uh, the, the, the major role in that. And I call it corporatism. I, I think it's just semantics here, meaning you know, the, what the corporations do as, uh, insofar as you know, pushing products to us that we may not need and, and how we react around that. And that, that's, uh, I don't want to uh, talk for you, but that's sort of more of the, the thesis of your book, correct? Yeah, more or less, that's right. Um, you know, if you look at, um, you know, if you, if you mix uh, our, our, our human nature, which by human nature, we tend to chase after pleasures and mistake pleasure for happiness. Uh, on the one hand, if you mix that with the system of capitalism, uh, with, on the other hand, then when you put those two together, what you come up with is what I term in the book, mindless consumerism, <laughs> which is this, this notion that we tend to overspend uh, chasing after things that are going to make us happy, but in the end actually uh, don't impact happiness. And if it does, it does so in an adverse way, in a, in a negative fashion. So, And, and I'm going to bookmark that because that's going to lead into the uh, intrinsic versus extrinsic that you talk about in the book. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. and, that, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but I, I kind of want to start with some of the things you that you start with in the book and follow that order. And um, you talk about death statistics right away. And, you know, w- we all die. And what do deaths, what, what could be a good possible death stat? Aren't all death stats bad? Give me a country that you say, <laughs> oh, I want their death stats. They're better than ours. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I guess uh, in, in the end, we do all die. So <laughs> there is something to that. However, what I'd like to suggest is that a lot of folks, um, you know, we, we can actually live a healthy life until we die. And that's something that uh, we've kind of uh, mistakenly assumed that, with advancing age comes chronic disease. It's automatic. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there's evidence for that in, in many populations, that's not the case, that that doesn't have to be the case. And in particular, if you look at uh, prehistoric societies, um, uh, pre-industrial societies, a lot of um, uh, patient populations, a, a lot of those populations of people um, never des- developed the sort of chronic diseases uh, that we develop into old age. Now. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to minimize the improvements we've had. You know, as a society, we've we've definitely uh, achieved a longer lifespan. We've overcome infectious diseases, but as we've overcome these infectious diseases, we've kind of graduated from the diseases of of, of poverty to the diseases of affluence. Mm. And so, you know, we don't, we're not seeing uh, malnutrition to the extent that we used to. We're not seeing infectious diseases to the extent that we used to. Instead, we're seeing things like diabetes and obesity and other chronic diseases, uh, which uh, I'd like to suggest again that there's not, it wasn't necessary that we have to take the, the bad with the good. There's a way to do it where we don't have to, you know, that we can actually take the good and not have to take the, the bad along with that. You can have your cake and eat it too. There you go. <laughs> so. Well, speaking uh, again about those companies and sort of the consumerism or corporatism, whatever we want to call mm-hmm. it here, just semantics. And they do certainly take advantage of us. I mm-hmm. had a PhD psychologist on the podcast the other day. It's, it's not out yet, but it'll probably be out right before this who worked for the food companies. 
And he explained how basically he, he helped them with their marketing from a, a psychology standpoint in making sure, let's say, the packages were uh, of colors where our eyes send signals to our brain to tell us, oh, these are nutrient dense because mm-hmm. they, they're, they mirror colors of, let's say, a blueberry. Yeah. Um, and, and think, things of this nature. Now, you know, what are, you know, I'm a sticks and carrots guy. I don't necessarily think that you are, but what are some sticks that we can throw at these uh, corporations or companies to, to stop them from doing this? Or do you believe that it is on us, the consumer to make these decisions to not eat these? Um, that's a great question. So I could suggest that on an individual basis, uh, any consumer can opt out of this toxic mix of factors whereby we tend to uh, chase things that are not good for us and in the hopes of increasing our happiness. Um, So from an individual perspective, you know, each of us, we can actually decide on what we're going to buy or not buy, right? And so uh, what helps to know is that um, there's a a large, uh, there's there's a good degree of science behind uh, what sort of things improve our well-being and happiness and what sort of purchases uh, do not. Mm-hmm. And I go into some bit of detail in the book about this, but um, you know, basically once you get past your, and this is oversimplifying the point, so I'll reference the book, but once you get past meeting your basic needs, that is once you get past having enough food, shelter, uh, clothing, water, you know, all those security, all those basic needs, then the best things in life are free. Um, that means that uh, there's a lot of those, uh, th- that means that, you know, uh, instead of um, pursuing a lot of those uh, purchases that then are likely to translate to less happiness, uh, we can actually take that money, invest it, and get to the point of becoming financially independent, which opens up a number of possibilities for us, a certain freedom that we largely do not have in, t- in, in terms of today's society. I uh, love happiness studies personally. You cite a lot of them in your book. It, they make me happy to read happiness studies. And also, <laughs> the contrarian in me tries to pick apart, well, you know, sure. what, what, what exactly is uh, the definition of happiness? Because that, mm-hmm. that is difficult to define, right? It's quite vague. And can you explain how you talk about in the book and, and the studies talk about the difference between um, like life satisfaction and emotional mm-hmm. well-being as happiness gauges? Yeah, that's uh, really interesting research. So if you look back, um, you know, there was um, uh, a fascinating study that came out in 2011, uh, 2010, 2011 by Daniel Kahneman and uh, Agnes Deaton, who are two Nobel Prize laureates uh, in economics. And and what they came to find is that, um, uh, actually what all the headlines at that time said is that past an income about of about 75,000, additional increases in income don't translate to greater happiness. So up until 75,000, you know, the more you make, the, the better. After that, there's a very quick uh, diminishing return on any additional income. Now that's what the headline said, <laughs> but that's not actually what their, their study showed. Um, there was actually two different ways in which they defined happiness as you alluded to. So the first was in terms of emotional well-being. Uh, and then the second was what they call life satisfaction. So emotional well-being, um, that's the sort of day-to-day happiness that we uh, talk about. You know, how are you feeling on a day-to-day, on a minute-by-minute basis? Um, 
And that uh, is what that $75,000 threshold was referring to. Um, but if you look at life satisfaction, um, the research actually what they showed is that, you know, life satisfaction continues to increase beyond that $75,000 threshold. And what is life satisfaction? It's basically asking someone how satisfied they are with their lives um, looking back. So instead of asking, how are you feeling right now? It's look back on the whole of your life and how do you feel? And what they found is that, you know, beyond that uh, $7,000 threshold, that life satisfaction continues to increase as income increases. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm just glad you brought that up and wrote that in your book, because a lot of people quote that Kahneman's uh, study, specifically that 75K to happiness thing. And, mm -hmm. and then they just close the book. They go, oh, mm -hmm, that's it. Mm -hmm. 75K, everybody's happy. I don't know what yeah. everyone's worried about. <laughs> and then, you know, in addition to that, we also have the Easterlin paradox, if you want to quickly talk about how that factors in. Yeah. So um, <laughs> Richard Easterlin, uh, who's a, uh, a professor in, um, uh, I believe, um, California, he, um, he came up with this set of data that showed that uh, if you look at uh, past societies, so decades ago, a person who is uh, wealthier than another person in that same society tends to be a little bit happier. But if you look at um, societies over time, that person, uh, for example, we are much wealthier than we were, let's say, 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. But as a society, we've not increased in happiness um, to, to any uh, significant extent. And actually also, in the last, yeah, yeah, actually, in the last and, few decades, sorry, and, go ahead. So, isn't that also like a sort of a, a modern day comparison? Is like if you live on a street and everyone makes the same amount of money and you make a certain amount of money, but you're not necessarily happier. It's, it's, it's based off of the people that are surrounding you and how much they make, correct? Yes, that's right. It, that's, that's exactly you know, the, the, the way to look at it, which is this phenomenon of social comparison. Mm -hmm. So we tend to, just by human nature, compare ourselves uh, to those around us. If we're doing better, then we tend to be happier. If we're doing worse and less happy. Less happy. So uh, there's, you know, there's public intellectuals like uh, Steven Pinker. Uh, there's a guy who, Michael Sch uh, Schellenberger, who was a mm -hmm. former environmentalist. Mm -hmm. And these are people who say, you know, everyone's talking about doom and gloom and we have to worry about our society. And, yeah. and there's a sense of what they call alarmism. And they mm -hmm. go, you know what? Just wait it out. Time time will heal all. We'll have enough technology to fix everything. Yeah. You, di yeah. you disagree with that. Can you tell us why? Yeah, I actually do. Um, you know, I, I love that book, uh, Stephen Pinker, Enlightenment Now, which is a great book. Um, it's, uh, I actually agree with many of the things that he uh, shows statistics wise. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you look at, you know, again, rates of extreme poverty, it's dropped dramatically, uh, you know, huge drops in extreme poverty over the last several decades. And in fact, over the last 100 years. Um, if you look at rates of infectious diseases, again, it's, it's decreasing. If you look at rates of uh, infant mortality, you know, you could look at all these various statistics, uh, even levels of violence. Um, and what you see is an improvement over time. And I don't want to put words in, into uh, Steven Pinker's mouth, but, um, you know, his, his basic conclusion is that, you know, we, we, can, um, we can continue on the same path. And we should be able to realize further gains. Uh, 
Um, let's not be alarmed about, you know, um, every single, you know, step backwards when there's two or three steps forward that we will realize in time. Uh, what I'd like to suggest, though, is that, you know, this, um, this is something that what has happened, if you look at some statistics that Dr. Pinker does not look at, which is, you know, the rise of chronic diseases, uh, for example, uh, then over time, we've actually uh, grown unhealthier. Uh, yes, we have grown healthier in the sense that we're not suffering from infectious diseases or the diseases of malnutrition, as I mentioned, but now we're just developing chronic diseases. Now, if you look at the traditional advice or the advice that our politicians give us, <laughs> it's to spend even more. And by spending more, we will innovate. And by innovating, we will find cures for the chronic diseases that we cannot even contain in today's world. So not only will we be able to manage diabetes, we'll be able to cure diabetes. We'll cure Alzheimer's, we'll cure cancer. And um, so, you know, in a, in a real sense, um, there is some truth to that. <laughs> and, and, yet, uh, and yet, what I'd say uh, in response to that is that, you know, by, by curing these various chronic diseases, which is itself a good thing to do, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, by not uh, by, by by focusing on greater uh, economic growth, which is greater GDP growth, mm -hmm. um, we've kind of missed the uh, the the purpose of which we are striving for, which is in increasing our well-being and our happiness. And by pursuing ever greater GDP growth maybe we'll become increasingly productive, but by continuing to be sedentary as we are, you know, and, and thereby enabling us to become productive, that doesn't translate to an increase in healthier lifestyles. So that doesn't mean that we are going to be exercising like we should be, that we're gonna eat a healthy diet, that we're gonna get adequate sleep. Those things to us are already free to us. Those, in other words, those things are already available to us in today's world. We don't need some sort of technological innovation to get to implementing that, right? I mean, we just need to take advantage of the fact that that is available to us. If only we were free enough to be able to, to do that. Now, we're unfortunately tied to a certain sort of living, which is a hazardous form of living, which is modern day employment, where we're stuck to a desk from eight to five. Uh, followed by, uh, you know, sitting through traffic to and from work for years or even decades on end. And so despite the increasing productivity, our health is in decline. And the fundamental reason we're seeing a drop in levels of happiness over the last few decades is actually driven by the decline in our health and the rise of chronic disease. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of jobs, you know, there's studies to talk about how you know, to be really happy at your job, you need a combination, hopefully both of having autonomy or agency, and mm -hmm. then also having purpose, right? You, you need these things. Right. If, you, if, if you're always told what to do, and you feel like there's no reason to do it, you're not going to be happy. If you have a little bit of wiggle room, or you can do some things that you think are important, and you think you're helping, and you have that agency and purpose, then that's going to lead to success. How, how do we get more of that? Who does that well? And how do we copy that? Yeah. Yeah, so that gets to the fundamental point, which is the uh, sort of the solution that I talk about in the book, which is, you know, if we are aware of this uh, 
concept of mindless consumerism. That is that, you know, once you've met your basic needs, uh, that the best things in life thereafter are free. And again, there's a lot of um, caveat there that I'll have to reference you to, to read the book to, to get to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, you'll get to that point. And once you see that, what you'll, what you'll realize is that you can do a lot more, you can put away a lot more of your money into investments than the typical financial advisor would recommend. Uh, so if you talk to most financial advisors, they'll say to put away 10% or 20%. And that's fine if you're going to retire late in life and oftentimes with a lot of chronic disease. Um, but, you know, what I'd like to suggest is for most of us, um, if, you know, we, we are aware of this, um, uh, of this notion of mindless consumerism and we decide to take control of it, then we'd be able to put away at least 30%, maybe 70% of our income um, and invest that so that you can get to the point of becoming financially independent of your employer. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I, that I recommend or that I hope that people will then retire. I, I hope that they don't. I actually think that there's a lot of value to work beyond that. But it gives you a sort of freedom uh, from which you can uh, live the sort of lifestyle that you are inherently capable of. Yeah, I, th- I think their stat is, and don't quote me on this, something like 14% of people own a car that's worth more than what they make in one year. So oh, to me, that yeah. seems that seems absurd. Uh, you know, my my wife, a full disclosure, is a pediatrician. We're a one car family, and it's not a fancy car because wow. it's you know it's not an asset, and it only depreciates. And there's no point of having two or three cars in, in our family. We we work fine with just one car. And I think That's you know right. l- leading to these sorts of lifestyles are are, are mm. important down the road. It's difficult to get people to do that because there is a sort of a keeping up with the Jones going on in our society yeah. and with social media and everything else. It's, um, I, you know, I, I, I guess I would say I'm maybe less optimistic than you that there's going to be, that there's going to be a turnaround, but b- before we get to your, your optimism um, or lack thereof, I, I want to talk about the retirement. Cause you just hit on that. There, mm-hmm. th- there is also like a new wave thought of, well, you know, there's chronic diseases. I don't know if I'm going to be living till I'm 70. What, why don't I just mm-hmm. take short-term vacations so that I could live it up a little bit and not worry about stacking that money away. What, what's your, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, you know, most people uh, probably are, are dependent on their paycheck on a month to month basis. Unfortunately, that it even a short-term mini vacation or mini retirement, I think uh, it doesn't seem plausible for, yeah. for a lot of folks. Um, I'd like to suggest that's very plausible. If, uh, if again, you, you buy into this notion that, um, that, you know, once you get past your basic needs that the best things in life are free and then invest the rest of that income. Um, you know, let me just kind of add to something you said, which is, you know, uh, about how uh, we tend to overspend on cars, just to add another dimension to that, uh, look at the size of houses over time. And, you know, if you look uh, several decades back, uh, you know, our houses now are almost three times the size it was um, in the 1950s, and yet levels of happiness have actually declined. And so it just kind of speaks to the, as a society, as you know, in US society, our levels of happiness actually declined. And so it kind of speaks to the notion that, you know, a lot of our spending is uh, intended to increase our happiness, but is actually reverse. The, the reality is reverse of that. Can we uh, discuss pay for performance. You talk about this in your book now that we are kind of talking about jobs and money and all of that. I think it's a good time 
what are your sort of macro and micro thoughts on pay for performance and, and how do we how do we fix that and what's what's a better alternative if you don't like pay for performance? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Uh, you know, Daniel Pink, um, who, you know, does a lot of research and, and um, uh, on this um, really kind of, uh, you know, spoke to this in, in a way that that it's really revealing, which is pay for performance works at a very rudimentary level where, um, you know, if you're if, if you don't require a lot of cognitive skills, uh, you know, maybe uh, just um, routine work, for example, where you don't have to think about things, um, then paying more translates to better performance. Whereas once you have even the most rudimentary of cognitive skill involved, then paying more um, doesn't improve outcomes. Actually, performance seems to go down in a lot of cases. And so even though it strikes us as obvious almost that by paying more for performance, we should be able to improve performance. Uh, it's quite the contrary in those cases where more than rudimentary cognitive skills are involved. So what I'd like to suggest is that there's a better system, which is that if we can get to the point where we are no longer dependent on our income for our daily expenses, for our daily living, our day-to-day -day living, uh, then our performance takes off in a way that it cannot um, because we tend to now focus on, on um, extrinsic rewards, which mm -hmm. is money, right? And so when, we, when you take money off the table by being financially independent, your performance actually takes off to a different level of performance. Um, you know, I, 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 I oftentimes hear uh, folks comment on, uh, on people like Elon Musk and how uh, what a genius he is, right? And and um, and I don't want to take away anything from Elon. He really is a genius in a lot of ways. But I, I'd like to suggest that a lot of us here, a lot of folks listening here, are in you know have an, some sort of genius within themselves. They just never had the chance to look up and see uh, things from a perspective that very few in today's world actually get to, which is the point of financial independence, where you can afford to actually look up where you have the time to be able to say, hey, you know what, maybe I don't want to do this particular thing. I want to focus on this aspect of my work. And maybe that's not what the boss wants, but that's what you want to do. And you have the leverage to be able to do that. Um, then you actually start to see things in a way that you can't when you're tied uh, to a desk from eight to five, you know, Monday through Friday, decades on end. So uh, I'd like to suggest it's a better way of living. Let me walk you through this hypothetical here. And now that we're, you know, my brain is going now that we're talking about this pay for performance. And yeah. we mentioned before, you know, sticks and carrots. How do we get people to do the right things? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's already been tried before. I'm not sure if successfully or not. Um, and I don't know if there's, again, this is going to be your wheelhouse if medically like this is uh, like against uh, what one would do as a practitioner or what medical insurance would do. But why isn't there sort of a very regimented tiered structure of what people are paying for health insurance based on their health? And I'm not just talking about BMI, which again, is sort of, I have another question for you. Why do we use BMI? To me, it's so antiquated. We have better variables to use to measure someone's <laughs> health, but why aren't there 15 markers of health that we all agree on? And then we go, okay, if you meet, let's say 13 of these 15 markers, you basically pay nothing for health insurance. And you know, if you're if you're smoking, then you pay more. And there's sort of like a tiered system. Would that work? Is that is that not okay? Because it's 
it maybe it benefits the affluent? Um, you know, it, it sort of is the system that we kind of uh, went away from. So there, there, is, uh, there was sort of a tiered system to the extent that uh, chronic diseases were often a exclusionary criteria for getting insurance in the first place. Okay. Um, I'm not sure that that um, really kind of helped us to get control of chronic disease um, any more than it does now. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, with respect to BMI, <laughs> that, that, that's a interesting comment. Um, yes, BMI is not the most accurate measure of, of our, you know, our health status. Um, in fact, uh, if you look in men, you know, uh, particularly for men, it's a, it's somewhat inaccurate. You know, if you look at, uh, folks who have a lot of, um, uh, muscle mass, yeah. they're going to have an elevated BMI. Um, but the problem is BMI is actually a pretty good measure, uh, in our population in the U S and the reason for that is because we don't have an epidemic of bodybuilders. <laughs> so, so in other words, if, if you're overweight, uh, chances are, it's not because you're a bodybuilder. It's, it's usually because, uh, of uh, certain aspects of, of our health, which are, are not good. So, yeah. I mean, listen, that, that makes sense to me. I, I get yeah. it. You're, you're right. It's not like everybody, <laughs> it's not like uh, everyone going to the doctor's office is coming in uh, looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger and he goes, exactly. Hey, just, my next big, I do, I, I lift a lot. That's why I have high BMI, but I, yeah. just, I just felt like, you know, it was, it was a bit antiquated, but uh, you know, mm-hmm. st- staying sort of in this medical system because, you know, um, a, lo- a lot of the book again um, is about consumerism and how that plays into it and how we need to make better uh, choices for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there's also, you know, you know, the, the, there are problems in, in, in all of our systems, right? And mm-hmm. that's what we do best as humans is locate those problems and fix those problems. And I think, you know, talking about uh, in the book, you talk, Sam is your avatar mm-hmm. uh, patient, right? And Sam, mm-hmm. I'm going to make this up and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe he's like mid fifties. He's your maybe mm-hmm. typical CEO, works too many hours, uh, mm-hmm. has a few beers on the weekend, isn't really paying attention that much to his health. Maybe it's a salad, uh, you know, uh, for lunch, but it's, it's covered in bad dressing yeah. anyway. So that negates, <laughs> that negates the salad anyway, you know, Sam is my sort of my avatar personal training client. And, yeah. you know, I, I think where, where maybe the process goes awry is that we check in with Sam, we being, let's say the medical, uh, you, the general practitioner, mm-hmm. Sam, mm-hmm. Sam is overweight. And Sam is now told, okay, you need uh, 30 minutes of exercise a day and you need to, uh, you know, stop eating butter. Sam comes mm-hmm. back six months later, he's got high cholesterol. Okay. Take this Lipitor pill and out the door. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so mm-hmm. we're, we're so focused on medication. It's, it's, yeah. pretty, it's pretty much the second intervention. And, you know, yeah. h- how do we solve that problem? You know, what we're doing is placing increasingly sophisticated bandages on our patients, right? Um, if you think about it, and if, as you know, you read about in the book, 70 to 90% of these chronic diseases, uh, surprisingly, are preventable. Hmm. And so at some level, you know, you're, you're marveling at um, some of the technological sophistication we have, you know, I think of uh, cardiovascular surgery uh, or neurosurgery. At some level, uh, cardiovascular surgery is just so impressive, you know, the things that we could do now. And yet, what if we had prevented that patient from having coronary artery disease in the first place? Yeah. 
Yeah. Wouldn't that have been a lot better <laughs> instead of, you know, using uh, increasingly sophisticated technological band-aids that, uh, you know, temporarily uh, gets you feeling okay enough to get back to your, the unhealthy lifestyle that uh, brought you to the medical system to begin with. What if we actually prevented chronic diseases? Does that though start with the medical system? Meaning if I am a general practitioner, I tell my patient, hey, th th this is what we have to do. This is how you're going to be healthy. This is how we have preventative care. And then also from the health insurance side, this is how we support preventative care so that people can become healthy. Because you know, I'll say this, this might be a long-winded way of, uh, of going about this, but uh, doctors, medical doctors, DOs, MDs are very humble. Uh, they almost never introduce themselves as doctor. If someone introduces themselves as doctor, they're probably like a, a PhD in like a German dance philosophy or something. Right. So uh, that, that's that's my experience anyway. So and because doctors are always uh, surrounded by other physicians and they're always comparing themselves to other physicians, they're very humble. But what what I what I think they don't see why that's a, a blessing and a curse or double edged sword is because the rest of the general population sees you guys as like omniscient. And whatever the doctor says, it's final. So if the doctor says, take Lipitor, it's over. I don't, I don't need to fix myself. I just need to take the pill and the medicine fixes everything. And I'll even add to that, that, you, you know, Dr. George, I don't have a client or I, I hate talking absolutes, but I would say 80% of my clients are on zero medication or they're on a ton of medications because once you take one, you go, mm, it fixes everything. And then you just continue to take medication. So I guess, you know, that was a long-winded way of saying, do we need the, the medical community to really be leading this march rather than just the general population? Um, you know, I, I think so to some extent. You know, of course, um, that advice of healthy diet and exercise are, are definitely the fundamental pillars of good, healthy living. And so, you know, you can't get around it. You know, it's not like you can skip that part, right? Yeah. Um, so that that's still fundamentally important. But there are some real impediments to, to uh, for most people to be able to implement that in their lifestyle, right? Again, if they are in stuck in their, uh, uh, tied to a desk, eight to five, and, uh, you know, plus traffic to and from work, mm -hmm. um, it, you know, oftentimes, most of my patients, I try to talk about this, they have good intentions. They'll say, hey, I'm going to be, I'm going to definitely follow through on the healthy diet, exercise, yeah. Um, but they come back and, and it just doesn't get implemented because, you know, they, they're in a rush. Oftentimes, um, they don't have time to prepare a nourishing dinner. Uh, lunch is often on the go, uh, breakfast, if anything, if they get breakfast, it's a breakfast taco or a coffee. Um, you know, they just, they don't, there's not enough time for real nourishing food. And, and, and so, you know, combined with the sedentary lifestyle, um, th this is really a health hazard in a way that a lot of folks don't recognize and appreciate. Yeah, I th there's a work-life balance problem that goes on in life now, more so than ever, uh, to the point where people are burning out. And I think uh, part, part of the issue is what you said before. I think uh, some people just can't afford to not have the next paycheck, and that's a problem. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. then we have to look not only, uh, I think people tend to not look externally, also what mm -hmm. you say in the book, and say, where can I cut from? Do I need to live this lifestyle? Do I need to live in this big of a house? Can I cut from other areas to have a healthier work-life balance, which in turn means that I'm eating the right foods, my body's healthier, I don't have to worry about chronic diseases, and all of these things sort of snowball together to, to make you a happier, healthier person. And that's really the thesis of the book. 
That's right. You know, Steve, um, there's a, a famous economist that a lot of your listeners will undoubtedly know, uh, John Maynard Keynes, um, who uh, is a Depression era economist in the 1930s. He famously predicted that in our time, uh, that this, you know, 2020s, 2030s, that we would only need to be working 10 to 15 hours a week because our productivity would increase to such an extent, which in fact it has. We are much more productive than, um, you know, those who lived in, in, the, in 100 years ago in the time that Keynes uh, predicted this. Sure. Uh, he was wrong. Um, but I'd like to suggest he didn't, he need not have been wrong, right? Uh, you know what, at, in his time, actually most people had a single family, a single person income. Most families, right? as opposed to most families now, both both parents work, both, you know, the mom and dad both work, right? And yet, somehow they're still uh, struggling to be able to uh, make a, a, a living on a, on a paycheck to paycheck basis. And we shouldn't have ever gotten to that extent. And again, you know, step back and see that the, you know, the, the types of cars that we have, the types of houses that we have, the, the, the enormous amount of spending, which isn't translating to increase in happiness. If it was, then that's justified. That's perfectly fine. But in fact, what we see, in a, as I display in a graph in the book, uh, despite the ever-increasing GDP trends, uh, levels of happiness have actually declined in the United States, in particular in these last few decades. Yeah, and that's that seems unbelievable, but it is it is the truth. How, however, you're measuring happiness, and uh, I, you know, I, I I see everything now through the lens of a parent. I just became a parent five months ago, and yeah. so I want I want to talk a little bit about that because you know a a, a burden that a lot of uh, people have are finances, financial decisions that that weren't necessarily theirs, meaning like they came from a background in which, you know, the, the parents didn't make good decisions on their behalf. And, and one of them mm -hmm. is, at least in my opinion, that's why I'm going to throw this to you, is college. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you think that uh, everybody should go to college? Do you think that we should have more trade schools? Do you think that there is this, this looming issue of college debt? Is this something that is leading towards this unhappy lifestyle? Yeah, first of all, congratulations, by the way, Steve. Thank you. Um, that's awesome. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, um, I, I would say that uh, everybody who wants to be able to go to college should have the opportunity to. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody should. Mm -hmm. But um, this college debt situation that we're in right now is, is very unhealthy. So that right off the bat, uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, and, and unfortunately, our our young high school students, graduates, they're, they're not, uh, they, they don't get a good financial education. And so, um, you know, when they're comparing colleges, let's say, uh, you know, they might opt for the most prestigious one or where their friends are going or, you know, um, some, some college where they don't necessarily take into account the level of debt that they're going to get into. And this is, the, this is a problem because right off the bat, they're going to be in a in a financial hole, uh, and as a result, you know, to climb out of that is much tougher than if they have, um, uh, you know, maybe opted for a little bit less expensive of a college experience where they are able to uh, keep from ever getting into that situation in the first place. So, you know, I'd, I'd like to suggest that we can we can really do uh, a better job if we can 
really kind of implement some some bit of financial education in the high school, college level uh, that uh, is likely to translate to to better decisions uh, on a financial front. Now, uh, my opinion, reading the book, and you can tell me if you're wrong, is uh, you're, you seem to sort of be glass half full that things uh, are, are going to turn around, uh, although there are problems. Is, is that not the case? Is there is there a, a ideal world where we're more in this 1950s family centric and uh, maybe 1970s community gardens and these sorts of things? And we're all kind of working in concert and things are better. Or or, or do you think it's, it is an uphill battle? Um. So I, I present a hopeful vision, yeah. uh, which is different from an optimistic vision. <laughs> so, so an optimistic vision is that, you know, you just kind of sit back and things are going to get better. That's actually sort of what Steven Pinker seems to, to suggest in his book in, sure. in some ways. Uh, but I, I think that actually we have to change the situation, um, you know, and change takes uh, um, that takes real effort. There's nothing guaranteed about change. And so uh, is it possible to get to that uh, sort of a state uh, in which we as a society are doing much better? Uh, I'd suggest that absolutely it is possible. It, it takes some uh, policy interventions, which I talk about in the book, uh, to be able to get to that, uh, to that level. So one of which is what I just talked about, which is, you know, that financial education that we have to implement at a, uh, at, at a younger age, in, in fact, in high school, in college, uh, to where people actually learn these principles and also the principles of which, uh, of how happiness is affected by, you know, what sort of things actually affect well-being and happiness. If we could teach that, uh, that itself is, is, you know, again, one of the policy prescriptions whereby we can, as a society, actually get to a better level of uh, way of living. Now, I want to do uh, some rapid fire thoughts here. I'm going to say four or five <laughs> words. You can give me first thing that comes to your mind and what you think about it in sort of like a, you know, a 30 second uh, elevator pitch kind of deal. Mm -hmm. here, okay. Uh, and if for some odd reason, you don't know what I'm talking about, we'll just pass. We'll go to the next one. Um, <laughs> Ready. <laughs> so. Artificial intelligence in the medical fields. Um, so again, you know, it kind of points to the notion that we need to rely on technological solutions for um, improving our health. When in fact, a lot of what we need is available to us right now. Healthy diet, exercise, good sleep, managing stress. Those are the pillars of healthy living. We have that available to us. We don't need any technological innovation to get us to that point. That said, yes, there is some uh, definite benefit behind AI and using that in medicine to improve uh, certain things that we can't prevent. Uh, cash only doctors. Pass. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I don't think, uh, you know, there's no, there's no, uh, with that, the only problem, uh, a lot of specialists uh, are, are very expensive. A lot of uh, procedures are very expensive. You'll just not get to a level of coverage uh, that is adequate for the population relying on cash-only docs. Universal healthcare. Universal healthcare is a, is a good uh, thing to try to strive for. Uh, that doesn't necessarily uh, mean government-run healthcare, so sure. you don't necessarily have to con confuse the two. I do think we need to be independent of our employer uh, for health, for our healthcare needs, uh, for health insurance. Right now, we're largely still tied to an employer-based uh, health insurance system. Uh, I do think whether that's run by the government or private um, entities, that we should be uh, striving for universal coverage without regards to um, uh, tying to our employer. Uh, last one here, universal basic income. 
universal basic income uh, won't solve the problem of consumerism. So, you know, give a person uh, in the middle class on up more money, that's not going to get them to purchase, uh, not chase after purchasing bigger and bigger houses or fancier and fancier cars. That's not going to solve that problem. It will help for those folks who are below the uh, a certain poverty line uh, to be able to uh, meet their daily expenses. So in which case you don't necessarily need it to be universal. <laughs> but uh, I want to tell all the personal trainers and fitness professionals out there, which is the vast majority of my audience, that this book is so useful for you because uh, these are our clients. Most of our clients who we work with are people who have the money to work with us. And if they have the money to work with us, they're not always treating their body in the right way. They're the people who are working 55 hours a week. They're the people who are maybe uh, hitting it hard on the weekends, the weekend warriors, as far as going out and, and partying, and they, and they live different lifestyles. And uh, it's important that we know and that we can help our clients from sort of a, a wholesome perspective, right? That we're not just helping them for that one hour in the gym, that we understand their lifestyles and how we can maybe even coax them into saying, hey, I, I know you've canceled on me uh, on me twice, Larry, but you have to understand if you're canceling on me, you're also canceling on your health, right? You deciding to stay that one hour extra at work all the time and not coming to me means you're prioritizing your money over your health long-term, which is going to lead to diseases, which is going to lead to a yeah. bad relationship with your family and, and things of this nature, right? So it's, it is imperative that we understand that we have to hold our clients accountable. We have to understand their lifestyles. And, and that's why I think this book is very fitting for fitness professionals to read. Hey, thank you so much for that, Steve. I really appreciate that. And I really appreciate the good work that you're doing with all your clients there and, and, and the message that you're promoting. Thank you. I, uh, I appreciate that. And so why don't we let the listeners, Dr. George, know where they can find your book and, and everything about it. Sure. The book is called Health in Flames, A Doctor's Prescription for Living Beyond Diet and Exercise. Uh, you can find that on any of the major re retail websites uh, from Amazon to Barnes and Nobles, Apple, or any of the major online retailers. Uh, you can also go to healthinflames.com to get more details. Um, I do have an ask of those who read the book uh, to uh, one, you know, hopefully you enjoy it and please leave me a review. That'd be help to increase the visibility of the book, to request it at your local library, because I'm more interested in getting the message out there than, than making a ton of money off the book. Um, and, uh, and then three, there's a, a place on the website where if you really want to get involved uh, to help bring about benefits at a greater level for a society as a whole, uh, there's a place on the website you can contact me. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Lastly, I just want to say you know, the book really balances anecdotes and information in a good way where it's not, it's not like you're just reading uh, his perspective, Dr. George's perspective, there's science, but it's not like you're reading a very difficult uh, scientific paper, right? It, it balances those two perfectly and sort of interweaves them to make a great story. So it's a, it's a great read. Uh, my guest today is Dr. George. Thanks for joining the Truly Fit Podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us on the Truly Fit Podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and review on your listening platform, and feel free to email us. We'd love to hear from you. Social at trulyfit.app. Thanks again.